Damas and Aaron, Mesdames et Messieurs, Damas y Caballeros, ladies and gentlemen. Now, why do I say that? That thing, specifically, that salutation in those four specific languages, as I've never really explained it. <laughs> and I know it's a little wacky. But here's why. Dutch, French, Spanish, and English. Not in that order, but those really are the key ingredients to the original recipe of this incredible place that we now call New York. And I mean, we all know about the English part of it. And I'm saying English, not British. Why? Because it wasn't Great Britain yet when this story started. It became Great Britain in 1707. But as you all know, or most of you, if you're listening, our incredible story starts in 1609. And so, what was it that really spawned this epic story in the first place? This movement from the other side of the Atlantic, this voluminous exodus of varied peoples from various European nations to this wild and untamed side of the planet? Well, if I had to put my finger on one single thing, I would say that it would have to be the oppression that was being imposed by the Spanish at the time, which eventually gestated into the 80 Years' War, which would also become known as the Dutch War of Independence. But this overall wider conflict would involve all of the aforementioned nations and others as well. See, the Spanish Habsburg Empire was an extension of the Holy Roman Empire. And in 1555, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V gave control of it to his son, Philip II, who was meaner and a lot less flexible than his father, as a lot of spoiled rich kids can tend to be. And in handing Philip this empire, Charles was giving his son power that was wide-reaching. At the time, it meant that Philip would not only rule over the Spanish, meaning the country of Spain, but also over all of the Dutch, as well as the people of what we would call Belgium today, who spoke French, by the way, for the most part. And in fact, though they initially hated each other, King Charles and the King of France, Henry II, reluctantly formed an alliance in 1559 specifically to stamp out this nuisance that had festered into a serious threat to this Holy Roman Empire, this Catholic Holy Roman Empire. Now, it's very important to point out that I have nothing against Catholicism. My family is Catholic. Um, and Catholicism comes back into this history of New York in a major way two centuries down the line. And that is, in fact, with my family, because, as I've mentioned before, my great-great-great-uncle, Honest John Kelly, was a part of that new movement, that new resurgence of Catholicism here in the 19th century, a resurgence that advocated for immigrants from all walks of life and fought for their rights. But again, this story is complicated because I would say confidently 
that the Catholicism that was being propagated in New York in the 19th century by Irish, Italian, German, and other first and second generational people was in many ways to them what this 16th century movement against Catholicism was to the throngs of souls being oppressed by the Spanish Habsburgs and the Holy Roman Empire back then. See, as I see it, it's really about having choices, having options, having an alternative, a new way, a new promise. Because the people back then, just like us people now, did not like being told what to do or how to do it. And they did not like being told what to do by what they knew was an extremely top-heavy, oppressive regime that imposed taxes, seemingly limitless taxes, with little or no justification for the purpose of and or the regulation on those taxes. Taxation without representation, right? Well, that concept and questioning that concept did not start in New York or Boston in 1765. No, people started questioning that way back, way back in the Middle Ages in Europe. But it would subsequently have a lot to do with this overall epic story, the story of New York. And unfair, seemingly limitless taxes, yeah, that is really something that we can all relate to these days, isn't it? Bad leadership, inept leadership, mired in such a deep level of corruption that it knows no other way. Yeah, that sounds all too familiar. And now, if we had to credit one man with this movement, this 16th century movement, against the oppressive, corrupt powers that be of the Holy Roman Empire and its vicious little offspring, Habsburg Spain, well, I would have to say that it was a man who was in fact himself studying to be a priest. Yes, a Catholic priest. Now, I want to also point out that today, in this United States of America, we have the great freedom and ability to question our own inept, overly inflated, top-heavy, ridiculously corrupt federal government without really worrying about being imprisoned or killed. Though you probably will eventually get kicked off Twitter and Facebook if you do it. But who cares? But as a citizen of the Holy Roman Empire in the 16th century, questioning your corrupt government and its twisted version of religion that it imposed on all of its citizens was putting your life on the line. Literally. And so, when a young German monk named Martin Luther began questioning the powers that be. It wasn't initially as an outward revolutionary. It was simply in his letters to others. For instance, he asked, why does the Pope, whose wealth today is greater than anyone else's, build the Basilica of St. Peter with the money of his poor believers rather than with his own money? That's a very reasonable question, right? Especially when he's doing it with their, our tax dollars. I'd want to know too. 
But Martin Luther also asked more complex philosophical questions as well, such as, how is it that salvation and consequently eternal life is determined by the church, the Holy Roman Church, and not by God? Because that too was something that this Holy Roman Empire was force-feeding its citizens. I mean, Martin Luther objected to these mantras of the day, such as one that went, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory into heaven springs. <laughs> Can you imagine? The church and the government, which was the same thing, was actually feeding that to its taxpayers and churchgoers. That if you give enough money to the church, which is also the state, that you will eventually find eternal salvation if you pay enough. We get that kind of crap fed to us, too, but in a slightly different way. But it's essentially the same despicable motivation. And it sounds all too familiar to me. And by simply asking these questions, by questioning his oppressive, corrupt, and inept leadership, Martin Luther essentially changed the way we live our lives forevermore. He single-handedly started what would become known as the Great Reformation, which would eventually lead to the origins of this incredible epic story, to the reason why people came here to this incredible island of Manhattan in the first place. And if you were part of the mass reformation that had started to emerge in defiance of this mounting corruption and abuse and snake oil that this grand oppressor was promulgating, then you were going to be up against it. Up against the world power at the time. And that was bold and scary. And you know, it is definitely worth mentioning the significance of what this incredible nation, this United States of America, really represents. And as great as we are, too many people take too many things and rights and practices and privileges for granted. Just for instance, this thing, this separation of church and state, we hear it a lot. But do we really understand the significance of it? Do we really understand why we need this separation of church and state? The importance and purpose of keeping them separated. Because it's really a newfound concept. In the big scheme of things, it's only been effectively thrust into meaningful practice for a couple hundred years. Maybe 300 years. And the nation that really thrust it into that practice is this nation. While the seeds of it were developing in the Middle Ages in Europe, this is where we really put it into action. Now, let's also remember that separation between church and state doesn't in any way mean don't practice your religion of choice. In fact, the point is just the opposite. It means practice exactly the religion of your choice. But what it means is that the government cannot impose any one or other upon you. Because again, in the 16th and 17th century, not only were the church and state interconnected, but they were collectively the political apparatus as one oppressive machine. 
And what that machine said was law, period. And you did not question it. Most sane people did not question it anyway. And the Holy Roman Empire stretched far and wide, controlling a vast swath of this earth. And because of these incredible words and questions from Martin Luther, and propelled by the invention of the printing press, which became more present in the more populous cities at that time, his word eventually made it clear to the people that in spite of the danger of saying so, it was time for a serious reform. Now, you also might be thinking, Martin Luther, I know that name, I think, but not as a guy from Europe in the 1500s. And you would be correct. Because in 1934, when a pastor from Georgia named Michael King visited Germany, he was himself so personally taken by what he learned about this incredible Martin Luther that he made perhaps the ultimate endorsement of his words and teachings by renaming himself after this revolutionary medieval priest. And so when Michael King became Martin Luther King Sr., he then looked to his five-year-old son, who at the time was named Michael King Jr. And because of his father's passion for this German theological trailblazer, Michael King Jr. would become Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I told you history is cool.